0: Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how, in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andra Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting, We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. Hi hey there! Welcome to ACMG. I'm really excited to sit down with Tony and Susie. Tony, can you explain to me uh, who you are, why you're here, your title?
1: Sure. My name is Tony Polan. I am an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. I am a, trained as a genetic counselor, and I also have a PhD in human genetics. And I do a lot of research on um, understanding the genetic causes of diseases, especially diabetes, um, especially type 2 diabetes and another group of diabetes that people may be less familiar with called monogenic diabetes and specifically for monogenic diabetes, trying to find the best way to see that patients get um, the correct diagnosis and treatment for those conditions.
0: Before I introduce Susie, can you give us a definition of what, what does monogenic mean?
1: So monogenic um, really means that mono is one and genic is gene. So it really means one gene. And the term is used to kind of distinguish um, conditions that are very, very genetic with one variant and one gene being responsible for, for most of what you're seeing as the disease. Okay. Um, which, is, which is, it's It's I say contrast, but it's really at the end of a spectrum from polygenic. So most of what happens to us in health and disease is related in some way to our genes, but it's related in a complex way usually. So it's a combination of variation and that
0: would be poly, poly
1: polygenic. Also sometimes called complex or multifactorial, but um, that yeah, and then and that's also genetic, but it's harder to to tease out the genetic component. Does polygenic
0: refer to maybe mutations or variants on multiple genes
1: then? Exactly. It means that there's, there's variants in multiple genes affecting you, and they're all sort of having small, small effects, and they're important for your health. But the difference in what makes kind of monogenic um, diabetes and other monogenic uh, diseases something that's useful to focus on is because right now we're very good at using genetic testing to diagnose those diseases and use that information to get people um, the the treatment that's most appropriate for that individual.
0: Diagnosing the monogenic diseases? Uh, Yes. Okay. Uh, Susie, hi. You want to introduce yourself and let us know uh, why you are attending here at ACMG?
2: Sure. Uh, So I am Susie Perkowitz and I am a patient living with monogenic diabetes. Uh, Specifically, I am a MODY-1, monogenic diabetic.
0: And MODY, will you just spell that just so?
2: M-O-D-Y. It stands for Maturity Onset Diabetes of the Young. Okay. So, um, yeah, I am a person living with monogenic diabetes, and having a correct diagnosis through genetic testing is really important to me. I know most people living with monogenic diabetes don't know they have it because they're misdiagnosed as type 1 diabetic or type 2.
0: Okay, so we talked about, um, well, we didn't really talk about the difference uh, between monogenic and type 2, but what were you misdiagnosed as?
2: Originally, when I was diagnosed because of how I presented, they thought I was type 1, but I tested negative. So I was then assumed to be type 2, and I received the wrong treatment for nearly three years, and I got very sick on the wrong treatment.
0: Increased insulin?
2: Um, medication that just didn't work. So my blood sugars were out of control and my diabetic retinopathy progressed very rapidly to severe and now I'm fighting blindness.
1: So
0: it is really important. Uh, Tony, you want to
1: yeah, I just thought I'd I'd kind of jump in and just just um, clarify that yeah that when we talk about polygenic diabetes, it's often it's it's categorized kind of into type one diabetes and type two diabetes, and those are kind of two groups of diseases. Type one is the type that tends to be insulin dependent. Type 2 is the the one that tends to affect older people, but not just older people. But that's often first treated with a drug that helps the body to use insulin better, but not necessarily a drug that helps the body to make insulin better. And that's what people with some forms of monogenic diabetes need. And with type 2, if
0: I'm correct, uh, they often assume it's a lifestyle issue, correct?
1: Yeah, so being overweight or obese, um, being very sedentary. um, Also, as people get older, those are all working with the genes. Those are also primary risk factors um, for type 2 diabetes. Um, And so in in actually improving lifestyle um, can help to treat diabetes, type 2 diabetes, or even prevent it in people who are vulnerable. But but they
0: don't necessarily have a... Genetic variant. Correct? They will. They
1: will have kind of. They have kind of a complex set of genetic variants influencing them. But it's because genetics and don't tell the whole story. Right. And lifestyle can make a difference. Whereas if you have a mon, many people with a monogenic form, lifestyle, uh, will not, um, will not, will not prevent um, diabetes. And and Susie can can talk to you about that. I'm sure.
0: Yeah. So how how were you diagnosed? You were so you were diagnosed as type one, and then it they realized okay not not that type 2 um, tell me about that experience in addition to receiving the wrong treatment
2: so i was assumed to be type 2 but i was an endurance runner and when i was diagnosed it was less than 24 hours after i had finished a 120 mile ultramarathon through the rocky mountains does that sound sedentary to you <laughs> no so from the get go the doctors were aware that i didn't fit the profile Um, But they just didn't know what to do with it. Okay. Um, So that was the problem. So they just started treating me like a type 2 diabetic um, when I really needed that extra layer of support of genetic testing to get a correct diagnosis. And so how did that happen finally? I kept getting sicker for three years. I didn't respond to the metformin at all because it's an insulin sensitizer. Correct. And I already was extremely sensitive to insulin. I just didn't make enough.
0: Okay, so that's, the mode, that, that's what's happening with that, Modi.
2: Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, the way I describe it as a diabetes advocate is that my problem is insulin insufficiency, which is more similar to type 1 diabetes. Exactly. So that's the type of help and support I needed from my treatment plan rather than something that was an insulin sensitizer, and that's why I got sick.
0: So three years later, how did they finally decide, let's do some genetic testing?
2: My eyes were just getting so bad and my A1C, which is a long-term test of blood sugar ranges to see if you're in a healthy range Mm -hmm. or not, um, was just getting worse and worse and just climbing up higher and higher. So back home in Chicago, where I'm from, my medical system, North Shore, started a personalized medicine project and I was one of the very first people tested uh, for monogenic diabetes and I tested positive.
0: And did your physician enroll you into that or did you find it on your own?
2: My endocrinologist within the system referred me to Dr. Liana Billings, who is also an endocrinologist but a specialist in monogenic diabetes as well as genetic testing. And I I believe Dr. Pullen can tell me she's an actual counselor.
1: Well, she's, yeah, actually Dr. Billings um, is is an endocrinologist. She's she's a medical doctor. She also has done training, uh, postdoctoral research training um, in, in genetics. So, did you get a call?
0: Did they call you in to tell you? How'd that go?
2: They referred me into Dr. Billings. She sat with me for an hour, took a really interesting family history, and said it looked like I fit the bill. I went downstairs, got some blood work, and two months later I had my diagnosis like magic.
0: And how did that feel?
2: I cried. I cried because I was on such a roller coaster for three years. I was trying everything my doctor said to do. And nothing worked, and I felt like a failure. And when I realized I just had the wrong information, oh, my gosh. It just was life-changing for me. I was—within a few weeks, uh, I was on the right medication, and within hours of taking the correct medication, my blood sugar came under control. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Hours.
0: I I have goosebumps,
2: and I often get
0: goosebumps in these stories, but I also have a—I mean, one reason I love these conversations is um, I I have a different disease state, lipodystrophy, but at my mutation LMNA is also part of the monogenic diabetes. Um, it, it would be one of those markers that that one would look at, and I cannot tell you how many times, um, with all of the hundreds of patients we have, it and they they even though they'll have a di a diagnosis of lipodystrophy, people are still mistaking it as type 2 and not lipoatrophic diabetes. And the treatment, you know, the step therapy is not working. And the amount of guilt that individuals feel, um, especially when we talk about type 2 diabetes, right? So it's that like well, you must not be
1: compliant, you mm-hmm. must, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that happens. And, you know, there's a number of different types. There's, yes, as you said, some patients with monogenic diabetes turn out to have a lipodystrophy, but it takes that there hasn't been anybody that's recognized like that their fat distribution um, is... Because exactly. the differences can be very subtle, um, and so that that's going to have implications for their treatment. Um, there are also people who find out incidentally that their blood glucose um, is is elevated, but they don't have any symptoms. Exactly. But because they found that out, because, you know, like we, we're very, you know, sensitive to numbers, they get asked to, you know, they get put on medication and the medication actually doesn't work because there's, there's, it's, a di- it's a different type than Susie has. Some patients have a type called MODY2 or glucokinase MODY. Um, where they're healthy and they're doing all the right things and they're young, um, but their glucose is high and nothing will touch it. And that's because they have a, a biochemical um Difference or abnormality where they just need to know what their treatment is, is they just need to know that they have it so they yeah. won't keep trying to become like everybody else, that they just their glucose is a little bit high. Um, so and it's not just about the diabetes, yeah. I can see in your
0: eyes, Susie. I mean, just the yeah, there's so many factors. And if that early diagnosis could have saved your eyes, right? But not only that, how about your
2: emotions? Absolutely. It was such an emotional roller coaster and it was so stressful because when you try so hard, you find out you have this terrible illness that's going to change your life and it's going to be a struggle and then you do what your doctor says and it doesn't work and you feel like you're failing and you're scared, you're terrified, and then your health is getting worse on top of it. And I hit a point where I was afraid to go to the doctor again because I knew I, I actually, right. you I,
0: dread that blood work, right? That A1C, you dread it.
2: Everything. I actually, I did, I, I delayed an appointment and then I finally went. And as I was sitting in the endocrinologist's office, my pulse was jumping up and down and up and down as we were going over things. And she thought, what, what's wrong? And I said, well, every time I come here, you give me worse and worse news. Yeah. And I can't change that. And I don't know what to do. So, having that diagnosis through the genetic testing, life changing. And that's why I became a diabetes advocate because I want all the others with monogenic diabetes out there who are misdiagnosed, who don't know it, to have the gift of a correct diagnosis so they can get that treatment that they need.
0: So, Tony, what are you doing um, to save the world? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to uh, increase uh, our knowledge around this genetic testing and and under- better
1: understand the prevalence of this monogenic diabetes? Great question. Thank you. Um, first of all, this is kind of a, this is a multi-dimensional problem. Um, you know, when you, when you, When you get to the point where Susie is, it's like, wow, it was so simple. I got you know the genetic result, Um, but there are a number of barriers um, that have gotten in the way, and I'm actually involved in both my research and advocacy work in trying to address all of those barriers. Um, I'm kind of in a unique position because I'm a trained genetic counselor and and also a diabetes uh, researcher, and so um, first of all, we um, we're we're wrapping up a research project funded by the National Human Genome Research Institute on implementation research. as part of this network called the called implementing genomics in practice, where instead of look we were looking at a system, but the system was not the system of the cell, um, but the system of the healthcare system and how you how you incorporate something like this into the healthcare system. So we set up a comprehensive plan that we then disseminated and, and evaluated and are continuing to evaluate where we first um, we figured out, okay, how do we find the patients? Well, we can't just be the people, you know, people like Susie who are really wonderful self-advocates. And even even with Susie, it took her so long. Well, and as she mentioned,
0: it's hard to continue yeah. to keep fighting. Exactly.
1: And and not all patients are, you know, have that kind of fortitude and you shouldn't have to. And so what we're trying to, what, so, so the first approach was not to rely necessarily on what each individual clinician knows, but to be able to, to start distributing questionnaires in a waiting room where we can use an algorithm to select patients. That's, That's, That's harder than it sounds because we're still kind of defining which patients these are. We don't, we're not yet smart enough for getting there. Um, but we used questionnaires. We also educated local providers, and we had we had different different types of settings we were evaluating this in. So we had an academic center, University of Maryland. We had a, a local um, suburban private practice clinic. We had a veteran affairs clinic, and then we had a, an integrated health system um, in Pennsylvania, the Geisinger um, Medical System, where we were doing this, finding the patients and who, who just knew that they had diabetes, um, asking them questions um, like, you know, were you diagnosed? Were you do you have type two diabetes? But you were diagnosed before thirty, because if that's the case, um, then you probably then you're very likely to have something monogenic. That's not that's unusual. Um, so we were looking for those kinds of unusual presentations, and then we um, another another. So that was should address the issue of how you find the people. The next step is how do you diagnose the people? So um, testing up until now, until recently, has has been very expensive. Um, and very complex. Um, and so we did did testing ourselves in a laboratory we have at the University of Maryland called the Translational Genomics Lab, where we can transition it, something from research to to to, to um, clinical. okay. and so so is
0: that a CLIA certified or it no? is So you can then rep- yeah. do you well, report and what that? we did
1: for the most in order to be cost effective for a research project, we were doing kind of the, the casting the wide net looking at you know 40 different genes on a research basis and then if we and then we then we would you have to manually look at you have to look computationally and then manually look at the data to see if you have anything and then if we find something then we would confirm it on the CLIA component of the lab.
0: And because you know it's much easier and cost-effective because you know what you're looking for. Yeah,
1: you way. just have to sequence through that one segment of DNA. Yep. And then I worked with, because they were part of the research team, to craft a report that was actually clinically useful, that actually said, would say something like, oh, this person has um, has a variant in HNF4-alpha. Um, they, they, they may benefit from taking sulfonylureas instead of, you know, whatever they were on, metformin or... And and so then what we would do, but that's even that's not enough. So then each patient who got a positive, well, if they if they got a, or if they if they didn't get a result, then you know we would just say we didn't find anything. But that shouldn't keep you from testing because that's research. But if we found something, it was just it was just like any clinical result. And so that result was disclosed to the patient by both a physician who could talk about how it would change their care. And, and, and the physician we happen to be work, work with is Dr. Elizabeth Streeton, who's one of the uh, unique person who's doubly boarded in um, clinical genetics and, and adult endocrinology. So she um, and a genetic counselor would disclose the result to the patient, talk to the patient about what it meant, and then the patient would receive three um, documents. The patient was, would receive the, the lab report, um, the, um, page, the, clini- the uh, physician note, clinical note. And a very patient-friendly letter um, from the genetic counselor. Those documents would then also be uploaded to the patient's electronic health record. Or if they were being referred from outside, they would get um, they would get copies of those. So that's a, that's a, I've I've kind of gone into really into the weeds with that. But hopefully that gives you an idea of kind of that's kind of the center of what we're doing. But then, you know, the next question is, you know, how do we take the data that we're getting from that? So we're following what happens in that and and using that data to um, what we want to do is establish a um, like a system of clinics. And so I think the key really to really solving everything, I think, and changing the world is relationships. <laughs> so, so we're trying to create relationships between patient between patient advocates and endocrinologists and genetics professionals. They can't just go back and forth. They actually have to work together. So we're working on things like embedding genetic counselors into an endocrinology clinics. Our future goal is to create a network of clinics that would be accessible both in person and remotely through telemedicine so that if a clinician wasn't comfortable, going into more detail there'd be a place they could refer to um, and then the other thing that we're doing um, so so Susie and I and some other patients and some other researchers clinicians we we speak we talk on the on uh, online a couple times a month and we brainstorm ideas and so one of the ideas we're working on now that will also be kind of very central to what we're doing is to unite um, all of the, all of kind of the goings-on all over the world in monogenic diabetes because for so long there's been so much going on, but it's been in isolation. Some various research projects actually funded by NIH are starting to bring that together. I mentioned IGNITE. There's also the um, ClinGen, and we have a curation panel that's funded by the the NICHD, and there's going to be a new initiative to study atypical diabetes, so people who even might have a form that we don't even know what the gene is, and all that is what we're all realizing is that there's so many of us involved. We're a lot of passionate people with a lot of different skills, and basically, the solution is that we we all work
0: together. Partner, and I mean having you both here at the conference together, and then just even this discussion, it 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 reflects the importance of. Um, it, we can talk with Tony and and hear how the process works, mm-hmm. but to see and talk with you and hear how very specifically it manifests and really impacts the patient on the other end is incredible. I mean what what strikes me is with with all of these conversations in genetics is we're making so many advancements but that technologically But our human advancements still need to continue, right? We must partner and work together to make sure all this information we're able to discover now is utilized in the most efficient right way to get the answer to the patient. That's the bottom line, right? Absolutely. Tony, how did you get connected to Susie?
1: Early on, when I started working on this, and uh, this really started really working closely in the area of monogenic diabetes, uh, there had been a movie made called Journey to a Miracle by the Jaffe family. That's also something I'd recommend if people want to learn a little bit more about this, more about the the the, the form that affects um, infants. And the woman, uh, Lori Jaffe, her daughter was diagnosed with one of these forms after, six years after being diagnosed at birth. And she told me that she, I'd already seen the movie. She I'd been at the premiere, but she'd act, asked me to... Uh, if I, if I could attend when they were doing a, a film festival. And so I went. It was in Alexandria. I'm in Baltimore as far. But I said, I always want to just show up. I'll show up at any event where I might meet people who have any interest in this. And I showed up there. I met a woman named Jennifer Rice. It was one month after she was diagnosed with um, a form of monogenic diabetes, Modi 2 um, which is the form I mentioned earlier. She right. doesn't require treatment 10 years after having been diagnosed with gestational diabetes and type 1. And so I met her and we started working together. We we started a website. She seeded some foundation work, got her speaking at a national meeting, and then she kind of got more involved in the advocacy community. She met some, some a bunch of really amazing, motivated self-advocates like Susie. Um, and we just decided to start having phone calls every a couple times a month to just start sharing stories and strategizing. So that's how it happened. led to
0: partnership. Yeah. That's great. Susie, it is, as you mentioned, really difficult to keep fighting after all those years and and, and disappointments. What advice would you give to individuals with rare disease who are seeking a diagnosis?
2: The advice I would give you is to keep asking questions. Keep searching on the internet because new research is coming out every day. And those of us who are lucky enough to finally have gotten our diagnosis, hopefully, like me, I'm trying to be an advocate. I am putting my story out there loud and proud so that if someone else might have monogenic diabetes, here's my story. And they've been fighting and their treatment hasn't been working. They'll say, wait a minute. I hear myself in this woman. Right. And they take that to their doctor. Absolutely, it's hope. Yes, exactly.
0: Thank you so much. I mean, I really, I mean, I really appreciate your time, your story, your advocacy efforts. Um, I know for sure, speaking with other geneticists here at the conference, um, that they've really been impacted by some of the stories, personal stories they hear. So, including advocacy as as a face in this whole process is really crucial. Um, and after all those years of battling, uh, are you still running?
2: Yes, I have ret- making my return uh, in August doing the Trans Rockies Run. It is that original 120 miler that I was diagnosed after um, back in 2013. So 120 miles, Rocky Mountains. August. I'll be there.
0: I'm so excited. It's like full circle. And then now you're on the right treatment. So you should be able to feel much better.
2: Absolutely. And I have to say, being at this conference as a patient, I am in awe of all the researchers. I am so grateful. And, you know, to have a face with the story to share with them is so important to me. But to see the faces of the people who are researching this and dedicating their careers like Dr. Poland, I just I'm so grateful to be able to say thank you in person. It's wonderful.
0: Yep, I'm I'm pretty sure I was kind of kidding, but only halfway, I think she could save the world. She is. Well,
1: and I have to say, we—I I wanted to just say that that Susie and I and the others we work with—we but we—we we are. This is a mutual admiration society. We're <laughs> <Yes>. so, <laughs> so grateful um, to, to to have the opportunity to to do all of this, and and I really, Andrew I really appreciate your um, inviting us to to talk to you today.
0: Great, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the conference. I look forward to keeping in touch and following you on that marathon. Thank you. This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click, listen, feel.